with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're changing things up a little bit this morning for a Thursday edition of After 9. Uh, usually we start with the uh, front burner from CBC News. Uh, we are sort of doing that. Uh, this is their broadcast from last night. It's front burner in brief. Hey everybody, Jamie here and this is our nighttime brief edition. A few coronavirus headlines from today to get you caught up. First, Ontario Premier Doug Ford expressed his anger at the lack of COVID-19 testing in the province. Uh, again, no more excuses. Uh, it's unacceptable. I'm, I'm, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I could give you every excuse under the, the book why it wasn't happening, be it the, the testing capabilities or, or the assessment centers or not having enough reagent. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm done. We have everything in place. No more excuses. And uh, as you can see, Ontario is conducting fewer than 3,000 tests a day, even though it has a capacity for 13,000, raising concerns that it's failing to capture the true toll of the novel coronavirus in the province. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced new measures today to support more businesses and young Canadians. We're making changes to the Canada Summer Jobs Program this year. We will now give CSJ employers a subsidy of up to 100% to cover the costs of hiring students. We will also extend the time frame for job placement until the winter because we know that some jobs will start later than usual. And because many businesses have had to scale back their operations, they will be able to hire students part-time. This follows criticism that benefits programs didn't reach enough people. For small businesses, he's proposing they will be able to compare their lost revenue to the months of January and February, as opposed to the same month of the previous year. Okay, so usually with these evening episodes, we try and answer a key question for you about COVID-19, but tonight we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to remember legendary singer-songwriter John Prime. When I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand. Thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band. John Prine died of complications caused by COVID-19. He was 73. And then I'm going to get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm going to smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm going to kiss that pretty girl. Prine was a songwriter's songwriter. He had many admirers, including musical icons like Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson. Friend of the pod and host of Q, Tom Power, is a big fan of John's and is here with me today to remember him. Hey, Tom. Hi, Jamie. Um, it's such a sad topic to talk about, but I do want to say that I've always wanted to be referred to as friend of the pod. So I really <laughs> appreciate that. Well, you are one of our best friends, so thank you so much for being here today, even though it's not under the best of circumstances. No, it's so sad. Last night, I had just finished watching that HBO show, McMillions, you know, and it's such like a mm -hmm. bingeable show that like, and we had just finished the second last episode and we were about to watch the last episode and I got the text that John had died and like, I just broke, like, it's, it's, it's amazing to me and I think it speaks to the power of, of music that... You know, I think we can often sort of pretend that music has a power and art has a power, but we're never entirely sure. 
And, mm. and when someone like this passes, you know, the, the way you feel it in your gut, like your uncle passed or like a, a family friend passed is, is, um, is, is palpable, you know? So it was right. a gut punch. And I went online and, you know, so many people around the world are remembering him right now. Look, I mentioned that he was like a songwriter, songwriter. And I know that he never had this big chart-topping hit, but he was so beloved by other musicians, so beloved by all these people all over the world. Like you just mentioned, you know, it sort of feels like an uncle dying. And, and what was it about his work that made him so unique? Well, he was sort of everything you'd want in a songwriter. He could be the funniest songwriter you'd ever hear in your life. He could be the saddest songwriter you'd ever hear in your life, kind of at the same time. Uh, mm. he, he could speak in everyday language. He could talk to you like your buddy at the bar. And he could also be profound and write poetry that you'd spend like weeks deciphering. So he was the total package with the simplicity of his music that made it accessible to anyone, especially to working people. Like he felt like he could be a, a working class, working person songwriter that never talked down to him because he, he, he was a member of, of the working class. You know, the, the story about John Prine is that he was a mailman who wrote songs on his route you know, and he gets up at an open mic at a place called the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago, you know, and decides to show off a couple of these songs that uh, he had written while out delivering packages. And he gets up on stage and he sings his first song. And the first song he sings is pretty much the closest he ever had to a hit. It was Angel from Montgomery, which became a gigantic hit by Bonnie Raitt. It's the first song he ever sings, and there's no applause. The packed room has no applause, and he says he really thought that he had messed up, that all this time that he had told himself in the postal van that it wasn't going to work out. Turns out he was right, because no one was clapping. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster. Turns out, this is true, everyone was shocked, like blown away by this kid, 24 years old, coming out of nowhere, this mailman, and just singing some of the most articulate, powerful music they had ever heard. Um, they didn't know what to think, they weren't ready to clap. When I was a young girl, you had me a cowboy, you weren't much to look at, just a free ramp. Uh, so, you know, and then Steve Goodman, who's a great songwriter who was there, he wrote a great song called The City of New Orleans. He calls Chris Christopherson to come in and watch John Prine. Christopherson comes to town and hates it and says he hates him because he made it look so effortless. People had worked years and years to write songs like that. And then this mailman shows up and writes these songs. <laughs> he like hated him for his extraordinary talent. That's exactly. Fair. I can't help but think he had this incredible gift to... You know, of not just being relatable, but also of helping people work through their own heartache and loss. And, and why do you think that was the case? You know, he really processed loss and processed heartache like we actually do and not like Hallmark cards or mindfulness apps ask us to. <laughs> like I uh, there's a great example of he has a great song called um, All the Best, you know, which is a song he wrote to his uh, wife. Uh, ex-wife, I should say, after they had split up. And we have, it starts off with, you know, um, I wish you love and happiness. In fact, I wish you all the best. 
I wish you don't do like I do and never fall in love with someone like you. Like simultaneously, <laughs> simultaneously feeling this, this profound love for someone when you, when you divorce, but also, you know, not being afraid to shy away from the hate, you know, and, and, and the true despair. So he didn't, he didn't cloud those emotions. Um, and, you know, when it came to songs about death, he wrote a great song called Please Don't Bury Me Down in the Cold, Cold Ground, which is a song about death, not about its finality, not, not about its finality or like the way the New Yorker would write about death, but instead about like, hey, please don't give away my organs because I want to be able to see when I go to heaven. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty right. funny song. Like he, 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 I feel like he processed... He processed grief, he processed loss in the way that people do when they sit down in bars and kind of chuckle and laugh a little bit about their sadness, not in this sort of like fake, profound way that sometimes uh, art asks us to do so. Right. He feels like a real person, like he has this authenticity about him. Well, yeah, I mean, he was a mailman from Chicago whose dad was from Kentucky and he never lost that in any of his Mm -hmm. songwriting. He's also been through some stuff, hey? Like I know he underwent cancer surgery in 1998. Uh, to remove a tumor in his neck. In 2013, he had part of one lung removed to treat lung cancer. I imagine that probably had something to do with some of his work. You know, I, I was talking to a couple of my friends about this, and these are these are folks uh, who knew him pretty well. And they said that, you know, when John um, got uh, COVID-19, when he was diagnosed with COVID-19, um, and, he, and he was brought to the hospital, the assumption was that he'd just be able to power through it because look what he had gotten through. It was after that time when he, his, his, he had the throat cancer that his voice completely changed. And he told me in an interview one time that he thought his career was over after that. And he thought he was a singer. Turns out he was a songwriter. And even mm-hmm. though he started to sing a little bit like this and not as beautifully as in the early ver- uh, verses, that brought a gravitas, that brought a roughness that I think people really, really loved about him. Um, but, you know, I think after that, after that time was over, he started to reflect more on his mortality but in his most recent record, The Tree of Forgiveness, he talks a lot about the afterlife. So it's really interesting to listen to it today, uh, given his passing. I know that's why you interviewed him a few years back. And, and tell me a little bit about that experience, this experience of, of interviewing him. It was um, a trip. Jamie, you know what it's like. You know, you and I have had coffees where we talked about interviewing people we think are cool and how, mm-hmm. how weird, that, weird that is. And, yes. how you, and how you don't want to be a loser in front of them, you know? You try very, very hard, and usually you're, you end up being a loser. But yes, yeah. yeah, you don't want to sound like Chris Farley when he interviews Paul McCartney and says like, <laughs> do, 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 you, "Do you remember the Beatles?" So we kept it cool. It was me and one of the Q producers, Chris Trowbridge. He set up the interview, and yeah, we talked about his life, and we talked about his songwriting. We talked about sort of the renaissance of younger songwriters discovering his music. Because you know, I think around the late '80s and early '90s, uh, "The Tree of Forgiveness," the record, most recent one, was his first one in 13 years. He felt a bit forgotten about, and frankly. He was playing shows to about 100 and 150 people. Now, out of nowhere, a new generation had discovered his music, and he was back to playing pretty much packed halls, if not bigger halls than he had ever played before. But I couldn't help at one point. He has, um, he has one verse of one of his songs that has meant the world to me, and I repeat to myself an awful lot. And I actually mm-hmm. got the opportunity to take down the artifice of being a cool journalist and just tell him how much this meant to me. And I was saying to someone last night that I feel very privileged. T- talk to me a little bit more about this because I, I re-listened to this interview this morning, and there there is this extraordinary moment where you where you go over this passage with him from Bruised Orange, Chain of Sorrow. So, so talk to me about this passage and what that was like for you. Can I read it for you? 
Yeah, please. You know, I, I think a lot about, you know, when you when you deal with tragedy, you know, as I have, as, as everybody has, you know, there's there's a hardening that can happen to you afterwards. And, you know, I have friends of mine who have never recovered from that hardening. And I often would worry that that I would I would become sort of hardened and I would become sort of cold. I remember I was in my kitchen uh, one night and the song came on for the first time. And, and the words are, you can gaze out the window and get mad and get madder. Throw your hands in the air. Say, what does it matter? But it don't do no good. To get angry, so help me, I know. For a heart stained in anger, grows weak and grows bitter. You'll become your own prisoner as you watch yourself sit there wrapped up in a trap of your very own chain of sorrow. And um, whenever I would feel nervous about being hardened or felt like the, the reflections and the sadness I wanted to indulge in it a little too much, mm-hmm. I would listen to that and, and have sort of a warning that, that life was, was beautiful and I could take advantage of it and I could be a part of society and I could, I could embrace everything that's great about life and that. But if I'm not careful, I could find myself in that chair with the chains wrapped around me. And uh, I was happy to get a chance to, to tell him about it. Uh, you know, it, it, it struck me this morning, do listening to it, that it feels poignant now, given how all of us are living right now, and also given how he was taken from this world, hey? Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm careful here because, you know, there's, there's, a room for, there's room for sadness and there's room mm-hmm. for grief. And I, I'm not and anger. Guy, yeah, yeah, and I'm not, I don't want to be the guy who comes on and tells someone who's going through a rough time to, to cheer up, you know what I mean? Or that it's not so bad, because, Jamie, it is. But yep. I, think, I think it is meaningful that in times like this, you try. You try to get up every day and put your shirt on. You try every day to, to not just wear pajama pants all day. You try to call your friends and you try to call your family, even if you don't, even if you don't make it and even if you don't always want to answer that Zoom call. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, that just the sheer effort of trying to engage in the society, of, of fighting for the world that you want. We want our world to be social. We want our world to be, to be full of you know, beautiful interactions. And I, I think about that song every day in, in this pandemic. Hearts in the ass house, come hello, come down. Like a long ago Sunday, when I walk through the alley on a cold winter's morning to a church house just to shovel some snow. I heard sirens on the train track, how naked getting noodle. And altar boys panicked by a local commuter just from walking with his back turned to the train that was coming so slow. A friend of mine texted me this morning. He said, the real tragedy of John Prine dying of COVID-19 is he'd have a great song about dying from COVID-19. Okay. Tom Power, friend of the pod, thank you. Listen to John Prine Day. Listen to uh, Far From Me. Listen to Bruised Orange. Listen to That's the Way the World Goes Round. Listen to Illegal Smile. Um, and uh, let's remember him as, as the great songwriter that he is. It is definitely going to be coming through my speakers all night. When I woke up this morning, things were looking bad. Seemed like total silence was the only friend I had. A bowl of oatmeal tried to stare me down and one. And it was 12 o'clock before I realized I was having no fun 
Ah, but fortunately, I have the key to escape reality. And you may see me tonight with an illegal smile. It don't cost very much, but it lasts a long while. Won't you please tell the man I didn't kill anyone? No, I'm just trying to have me some fun. Okay, so one more thing before we go tonight. Senator Bernie Sanders ended his presidential campaign today. Lots, lots, lots going on, clearing the way for Joe Biden to get the Democratic nomination and take on Donald Trump in the upcoming U.S. election this November. As I hope all of you know, this race has never been about me. I ran for the presidency because I believe that as a president, I could accelerate and institutionalize the progressive changes that we are all building together. And if we keep organizing and fighting, I have no doubt but that that is exactly what will happen. While the path may be slower now, we will change this nation and with like-minded friends around the globe, change the entire world. That's it for now. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you in the morning. No, I'm just trying to have me some fun. Last night's front burner and brief from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM. You're listening to After 9. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. And now this morning's regular front burner podcast from CBC News. Hello, I'm Jamie Poisson. Yesterday was a big day in Wuhan. That's, of course, the city in China where COVID-19 first emerged. And 11 million people there have been living under a very severe lockdown since the end of January. Nobody in, nobody out. But as of yesterday, the quarantine has been lifted, meaning people are finally able to travel outside of Wuhan, and it's another step towards slowly resuming normal life in the city. I haven't been out since January 21st. This is the first time I left the house today. Now I'm going back home to meet my parents. Do they miss you? Of course. Don't speak to me anymore. I'll start to cry if you say more, because it happened so suddenly. The reopening follows some good news. Just three new cases of COVID-19 were reported in Wuhan in the last three weeks. And on Tuesday, for the first time since January, China reported no new deaths from coronavirus. It's obviously a really exciting moment for people in that city. And for those of us watching from Canada where cases are still climbing, the story of Wuhan might give us some hints about where we're headed and also what we might need to worry about in the future. I'm going to talk to a reporter in China about that. But first, I wanted to hear from Maxine Leo. She's a Wuhan resident who's been living through the lockdown there. This is Frontburner. Hi, Maxine. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, um, I, I feel happy to do this. Um, I'm happy to talk to you, too. Oh, wonderful. So before we get to what's happening today, I just want to put this in a little bit of context. How long have you been stuck in your apartment for? Since January 23rd. 
and to yesterday yeah it was about 75 days that seems like a long time hey so you couldn't even go outside to get a little bit of exercise at the beginning no Can, can you tell me what it was like for you for example like how were you able to get food so at the first uh, like one week, we are still allowed to go out to buy groceries, but slowly they like the the management getting more strict. So the community told us that we can just tell the community what we need. So then they will contact fire, and the fire will deliver food to us. Then we go down at the gate to get our food. So the community in your apartment complex. They're helping order food in like a very centralized way. And also they're sort of policing people's behavior in your apartment complex to make sure that you're not going outside too much. Is that fair for, for me to say? Um, yeah, yeah. So every small community will be responsible for your safety. So the government will like uh, send them, hey, this is uh, the news recently, this is the uh, regulations recently so please make sure that everyone is safe yeah what's that been like for you mentally to be cooped up in your apartment for 75 days especially in such a terrible crisis like this well um i have to say it's a very historical moment for everyone in china in Wuhanese. so uh, at the beginning staying at home we have a little bit like a curiosity, like we're curious what happened exactly. Like, uh, and also we have a little bit like anxious because we, we don't know like how long will we be stay inside. As for me personally, I like, I try best to uh, find something to do to like enjoy my time. You know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's pretty hard a little bit. What do you mm-hmm. do? What did you do yeah. to enjoy your time? First, I will like to watch movie with my boyfriend. Um, then we uh, we sometimes play puzzle and we play uh, poker. Okay, yeah. play poker. And uh, yeah, we will enjoy wine and uh, also like we will have talk. You know, I, I have to say it's a good time for couples uh, who are living together to understand each other better. Um, we will talk a lot uh, different topics. You know, so yeah. at, at, at some level, this helped me improve the relationship with my boyfriend. Oh, that's good to hear. That is very good to hear. I imagine yeah, that yeah. might not be the case for everybody, right? To <laughs> <laughs> anybody else, I don't know, but at least to me, I realize yeah. we are closer. Yeah. <laughs> see, I, I, I understand, though, that in the beginning, you had a hard time uh, with panic attacks. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. Um, so I had a little bit of panic attack. So th- this was pretty, like, new to me, right? So I, I don't know what happened. I just sort of feel anxious, and I feel a little bit hard to breathe. Uh, luckily, my boyfriend was here, so he helped me a lot. So I think probably I first I read too much sad stories. Like, uh, I know there's a lot of people got infected, so I feel sorry for them. And um, also because I don't know uh, when can I get out again. So, I, yeah, that just happened. I, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that. 
I, I know that today the lockdown was lifted in Wuhan. And what has that meant for you practically? <laughs> like, are you allowed to go out now or? Yeah, yeah, we, we are allowed to go go out. And uh, me and my boyfriend, we went outside and we went to the convenience shop. We bought mango juice and yogurt and uh, hot dry noodles. Uh, then we got our scooter fixed. Then we went on a ride to East Lake. I just feel like Wuhan is now like slowly going back to their normal routine. The city is going back to their like lively life again. I feel so excited. I'm happy. Maxine, I'm I'm so glad that you were able to go and, and get some noodles and, and go for a scooter ride today. That must have felt really good <laughs> after 75 days cooped up. I'm wondering if all that time in lockdown has changed your perspective on anything. Like, if there's anything you're thinking about differently now than when the quarantine started. Well, this actually changed my life attitude a lot. Like, I think a lot about, like, what is the life uh, should be or um, what's the meaning of life. And um, I realized... Like before, I was uh, like kind of person who go out with friends a lot, and I used to have a lot of friends. But slowly, I realized like who are the most important people to me. Yeah, and also what kind of life you're going to have in the future, because you know who knows. Right. This has sort of put things in perspective for you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I'm I'm really appreciative and and wishing you. You know, a, a wonderful and, and healthy future. Thank you. I believe I will be, and we will be. And thank you. I'm glad to talk to you too. Part one of this morning's CBC News front burner. Part two is coming up in a moment here on After Nine. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now part two of this morning's front burner from CBC News. So as people start to return to something a little closer to normal life in Wuhan and across China, officials are worried about another spike in the virus. So I spoke to Sean Yuan. He's a journalist who's been reporting on life in Wuhan and across China, and he's in the southwestern city of Chengdu. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So I I know that you were just listening in on my conversation with Maxine. Reactions? Yeah, I think uh, it definitely maps onto what I've been talking to, you know, with Wuhan locals, the restrictions are are loosened and uh, the, the life is definitely getting get more and more back to normalcy. Shopping malls and retail plazas are slowly reopening in Wuhan city. I'm very excited and happy for the first day of reopening today. I think being able to be healthy and leave the house and meet with other colleagues who are also healthy is a very happy thing. It might seem very ordinary, but after enduring the epidemic, being safe is a blessing. But uh, uh, that's, I don't think that's a universal uh, phenomenon right now. There are still a lot of neighborhoods where you still cannot get out. Can you tell me more about that? Why? Why are there still a lot of neighborhoods where you can't get out? Yeah, so April 8th is a very dramatic date, and it's the day where the, when the official lockdown is lifted. 
So a lot of people had high hopes in terms of uh, what this would mean to Wuhan, what would mean for the outbreak in China in general. But I think that's overhyped. And uh, the the, prop, the situation is that yes, of course, right now people could leave Wuhan now, and people from other other provinces or cities could go into the city. But for those people who are living in their uh, in their apartments, who are stuck in their uh, apartment buildings, that does not change too much because there are still a lot of uh, asymptomatic cases in 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 Wuhan, and um, and with people more people coming into Wuhan there's definitely a more complex situation in terms of the country and provision of the outbreak because before this everything was inside Wuhan nobody could get out and nobody could get in so they mm-hmm. could control the situation a little bit better but now since the the channel is open a lot there will be a lot more flow of, uh, of people and that will inevitably uh, cause some concerns in terms of whether there will be another spike of viruses yeah Sean can you tell me a little bit more about how they're like enforcing this, you know, how do they know where these asymptomatic people are? You know, how are they able to kind of decide which apartment complexes or areas are shut down versus others? Yeah. So for those uh, neighborhoods that do not have remaining cases, they will have a much more loosened restrictions. So they will allow people to get out and when you come back, they will check your temperature. And for those uh, neighborhoods that still have remaining cases, uh, they will definitely have a more strict uh, restriction. And the problem right now is that, uh, as, as I told you earlier, that uh, there are more and more asymptomatic cases showing up. And a lot of neighborhoods actually rebranded to high-risk areas, meaning those compounds were kind of locked up again. Right. Why are there more and more asymptomatic cases showing up? Uh, so asymptomatic cases before this, they were not counted in the official tally. And uh, the number did not get released until April 1st. So nobody really knew what was happening before April 1st. How many asymptomatic cases were there in total? According to those same uh, health authorities, there are currently uh, 1,541 such cases in the country right now. Another 78 people tested positive for the virus but don't have any symptoms. That's up from the 47 infections recorded just uh, 24 hours ago. So once that gate is opened, a lot more people are paying attention to this. And you mentioned that people are coming in and out of Wuhan more. So tell me a little bit more about that so today was the first day where when people would be able to leave Wuhan and last night at midnight the they dismantled the roadblocks and it was a very dramatic moment of course and then uh, according to the data released by the um, I think Ministry of Transportation today uh, about 55,000 people from Wuhan left uh, the city and 40% of them went to the Pearl River Delta, which hosts big cities like uh, Shenzhen or Guangzhou, where normally they have a lot of people coming from across the country to work. So uh, for a lot of people, most of them uh, who have been stuck at home for two months without any sort of income, they mm-hmm. desperately needed to get out of the city to get back to work. You know, And also there, were, uh, there are some people who are from other provinces or even other, other cities who happen to get stuck in Wuhan when the lockdown was imposed. So they were in the city for 76 days and they this is the first chance for them to actually leave. It sounds incredibly stressful for, for them. Yeah. Just to go back to this idea of, of certain areas in Wuhan being locked down and the concerns now that we're seeing more movement, especially out of Wuhan, how are authorities actually policing this? You know, how, how do they do this practically? You know, ensure that people yeah. who are asymptomatic are being tested, and then, you know, they're being quarantined. So there are a couple of things that I think the government is really pushing right now. The first one is the, the it's called health code. 
So anyone in this country, if you want to travel to somewhere else, you have to uh, apply for a health code. And in this app, they will ask you where you've been in the past 14 days, whether you have been in close contact with anyone who has been suspected of having contracted coronavirus. And, you know, those basic questions. And if you answer no to all of them, you will get a green code. And that huh. green code will pretty much give you a safe pass to everywhere. So most people will try to log in every day to say where they've been, whether they have been to uh, those places that have been declared, whether, for example, if they find a, a patient in, in the supermarket. And if you have been to the supermarket before, then you should declare it. And then your code will probably turn to yellow. Or wow. if you have been in close contact with someone who's been um, uh, confirmed of having uh, contracted virus, your code will turn red, in which case you get quarantined. So uh, that's one of the um, firmest push, pushes for the, from the government to kind of make sure that they can police this whole thing. And then uh, second of all, just make sure that, you know, uh, the, the virus doesn't get transmitted too widely. Because I think the government is well aware of the fact that if as soon as the lockdown is over, there will be some more cases coming up because of the, you know, uh, increased flow of people. But mm-hmm. so they have been pushing for the, uh, the idea that everyone needs to wear a mask. And uh, no matter where you go, especially if you go to public place and if you go to indoor spaces, you have to get your temperature checked. So I think it's more a kind of a cohesive and robust system to make sure that after the lockdown is lifted, there would not be a second huge spike of cases across the country. Right. Sort of like a suite of tools, heavy, heavy surveillance, um, masks and like a series of other checkpoints that the authorities exactly. have put in. That's really interesting to hear um, how they're trying to manage this. Now, I know you're in Chengdu, which has been more open for a longer period of time. And so what's it like there right now? Um, For now, for the past two weeks, I think you started to see life to get back normal. For example, um, two and a half weeks ago, the the, very famous Hapa restaurant in Chengdu opened. And that was a very definite sign for people in Chengdu because that's such a powerful symbol of life getting back to normal for a city that is just branded as a city of hot pot. And it's such a social uh, way to eat too, right? So Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Gyms are open and most restaurants are open. Um, I think theaters are scheduled over soon as well. So life is definitely getting back to track in, in Chengdu. So I think that's the case for a lot of cities across this country as well. Sean, can I ask you, you know, when you take a step back and you try to look at the big picture here in Wuhan, in Chengdu, what is the damage that's been done in terms of uh, lives, in terms of um, the economy? Let me put it this way. Um, 12 years ago, in uh, in 2008, we had this major earthquake in, in Sichuan, and it killed about 70,000 people. But it also left more than 50,000 people dealing with serious injuries. High school senior Zhao Chunling losing her hand in the quake. She's working double time to keep up, but refuses to complain. A boy trapped beneath me helped dig me out of the rubble, but he didn't survive. I think about him constantly. 
it was a national tragedy and uh all of we we never thought we could get out of this misery because chindu was pretty much at the epicenter of the earthquake a lot of people died and then uh, we were discussing how what kind of impact that would have on our, on our country and on our people and on the economy and the same thing happening right now in Wuhan or in china in general about this pandemic so as you said the mental health part you were talking to maxine about how many people were actually having for example panic attacks and they that developing anxiety and depression just by simply being stuck and quarantined in an apartment for 76 days in the epicenter of this pandemic you know like a lot of people would know someone who had contracted virus maybe who had died from the virus as well and the thing about wuhan is there were clusters of infections in family uh, units if you talk to someone who who got infected, it's very likely that his relative in the same house who got infected as well, and some people might even uh, have passed away. The people do not get over those kind of misery and those kind of tragic memories just because the, the life is getting back to normal in a specific, specific city. The toll on mental health is going to be very, very long-lasting, even for those people who do not personally know anyone or personally uh, being affected by the coronavirus. It is still a collective memory and collective collective tragedy that we feel towards this whole epidemic in in china and that's the the, the damage to uh, how much we can calculate that we have years to come to make sure that we we understand what has been done and what we can do to remedy it mm-hmm. and in terms of the economy in terms of economy um according to the statistics the statistics released by the national bureau of statistics i think last month the first quarter of 2020 uh, saw the highest unemployment rates in Chinese history since there was record. And not just China, you know, across across the world right now, with Canada, with the U.S., and U- with Europe. Not since the Great Depression has Alberta's economy been hit harder or faster. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney says the unemployment rate is expected to hit a startling 25% or higher. We will face a great fiscal reckoning in the future. Those major economic hubs, um, they are all taking the big, uh, big hit of this coronavirus. Yeah. So I think it's going to take a long time for the world and China to to kind of recover from this. Okay, Sean Yuan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sean, I was really struck by the level of surveillance he was describing in China, how people have to report all their movements each day, how they're given a green or yellow or red pass card, essentially. And this is just one of the ways authorities are trying to keep a lid on the virus as the economy gets up and running again. Well, related conversations are happening around the globe, too. In Europe, for example, the idea of an immunity passport or antibody passport has been floated. It would be given to people who have already had the virus and thought to have built up an immunity to it, and restrictions would then be eased for them. This idea, though, is still in its early stages because there are still a lot of questions about how COVID-19 immunity plays out in people infected. And as we've talked about on the show before, Israel has used cell phone data to retrace the movements of people infected. Hong Kong has been using tracking bracelets. So this is a really important angle of the story that we're going to be keeping a close eye on and and especially what could happen here in Canada. So stay tuned. That's it for today, though. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to Frontburner and talk to you later. 
Frontburner is a production of CBC News. Frontburner can be found on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We're going to close out today's show with an interview that Sharon Hurd did with Mayor Lynn Hall on a Tuesday's uh, Tuesday afternoon's Senior Moments interview. And uh, the mayor starts off by explaining how he's uh, keeping abreast of the situation. Sharon, one of the things that I've been adamant about uh, doing is keeping close track and watching every day uh, when uh, Dr. Henry gives her updates. Yes. And then that's followed up by Minister Dix, the uh, Minister of Health. Yes. But Dr. Henry uh, gives some very valuable advice, and she's very straightforward. Uh, she doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, she tells it the way it is, and her messages, uh, in a lot of respects for me, are comforting. Yes. And... I take them to heart personally and my family, and I try to re-deliver that out into the community. And what we're hearing from her are the statistics. What we're hearing from her is, um, uh, you know, flattening the curve and what we're doing here in B.C. And if you look across the country, uh, we are in, we're in pretty good shape. Yes, yeah. we've, there's no question. We've had major things happen as a result of the virus. Um but it's, it's just important to watch her if you can. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention is uh, the government implemented, and I have to admit that I have not called it to see how well it works, but the government implemented the 211 program. So you just dial 211 and it connects you with, um, with the provincial government uh, ministries to provide uh, advice and help to seniors. Yes. Yes, and a friend and, of mine who's 84, she called it, and, and she was quite impressed with it. Good. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. I would advise people when they start to feel anxiety or they have questions that aren't being answered by Dr. Henry, phone that number, because mm-hmm. you're right, I watch Dr. Henry every chance I get, and I, I have the TV on to watch her, because there's where you're getting the truth. Yeah, uh, and, and when you talk about... The truth, and you talk about her delivery, uh, it's factual. Yes. Uh, and that's what's so important right now. It is. And if you take a look at the Northern Health Authority region, uh, you know, we have the lowest number of cases in the province. Yes. And it's, it's our health care professionals that are really uh, responsible for that, the job they're doing. But not, not only them. But it's, it's, it's what we're doing as individuals to keep that social distancing of six feet. And I did do that ad, Sharon, that you and I and Lola Dawn talked about. Yes. Um, the social distancing is important to stay at home as much as you can. And if you do go out, just make sure that you still apply that social distancing when you're out and about. Uh, one of the messages that I've been sending as well is um, for people to make sure you check in on your neighbors, but especially seniors. And, you know, I, I live in a cul-de-sac, and, and you know, the ages range uh, yes. from, uh, you know, young families to me, I guess. And yeah. uh, I just want to, uh, and, and we keep in touch with each other. Yes. And that's important. And I will say that during the pandemic and what we're dealing with, uh, people say it's unprecedented, and there's no question it is, Sharon, but that means that we do unprecedented things, things that we're not used to doing. And I think if seniors need to reach out, reach out to your next-door neighbor, even if you don't know them that well. Uh, 
phone family, phone friends. Yes. Uh, phone the 211 if you need help, if you need somebody to grab your groceries for you or even something uh, that's health care related. Yeah, and we need... had the crisis on last week, and Sandra said a crisis isn't what we describe as a crisis. It's a crisis is what you feel is a crisis. And so the exactly. crisis line is also available any time for people to call and get support. Yeah. And we call it crisis. No, you can call any time. It doesn't have to be a crisis that some other people would judge as a crisis. Exactly. So, and, and I was really pleased that Sandra brought that up. Because yeah. when we hear the word crisis, we think we can only call them if we're, right. you know, really having a bad day. You can yeah. call them if you're having whatever kind of a day they're going to talk to you. You know, Sharon, it's a helpline, isn't it? Yes. It, it, and, you know, the connotation crisis implies that something terrible is happening to you. Yeah. And, and many times you think, oh, it's a physical crisis. But, you know, you may just need a voice to, to talk to. You just may need a little bit of help for something around uh, your house, and they can provide you with, uh, you know, a name of somebody that can come and help you. That kind of thing is so yes. important. Yeah, and and you know, Sandra made it such a clear. You know, we are not um, we are not judging what your call is about. We're just there to listen and help whatever way we can. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really good message to send out, especially at this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's no real end in sight. No. Uh, Dr. Henry talks about these next couple of weeks being so so important to us and trying to uh, reduce the impact of the number of of um, people with the with the virus. Uh, and I I can say that I've had great conversations and been part of a large presentation by Northern Health. Yes. Uh, you know the health. The health community, the doctors, the nurses, the frontline staff, all the support staff—they're prepared, Sharon. They're yep. ready for this. So, and if so, seniors are are having questions about, oh, if I have to go to the hospital or if I have to see a doctor, yeah, uh, the healthcare system in our region is prepared. That's good and to hear. That's what I took away from uh, my meeting and that presentation we got from the Northern Health Authority. Was that part of the Prince George Emergency Operations Center? That meeting. Uh, Pardon me. Was that part of your emergency operations organization? With no, uh, it's separate. So we have our our, our emergency operations center is uh, up and running uh, only at a level one, uh, right. and what that does is it brings all of the partner groups together in one room, like the regional district, the health authority. Uh, First Nations, a number of organizations are at that table. Just in case this does get worse, we're ready then uh, to put into place a number of uh, things similar to what we did during the wildfires. Right. So we have everybody at the table. Everybody knows what each other is responsible for and what we're doing. Uh, And as I said, if it gets worse, then we uh, would boost it to a level two and take action on a number of fronts if we had to. But we're certainly not there yet. Yeah. If we will be. I, uh, and so when you say we're ready, you know, all of this um, almost, I wouldn't say, well, this this anxiety in the American news about running out of this, running out of that. Yeah. We're learning from that, right? We're 
we're we're prepared not to be in a shortage position of of the articles that we need if uh, if we start to have an increase. Yeah, absolutely. And if you listen to Minister Dix, uh, who speaks just after Dr. Henry every day, uh, yes. Monday through Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and the Prime Minister comes on about eight thirty our time in the morning. And, yes. And recently, both Minister Dix and the Prime Minister have been talking a lot about. Uh, surgical masks, uh, the N95 mask, and different other um, uh, supplies that the doctors uh, and nurses need. Yep. Uh, and it's reassuring to hear the work that they're doing and the, the amount of supplies that we're getting from uh, from various companies. And I will say, I heard this morning that Canfor uh, are providing uh, product from the pulp and paper business that they have yeah. uh, to companies that are developing and building and making masks and those kinds of things. So yes. that, that was uh, very interesting to read. Yeah. Canfor is a real uh, community-oriented oh, um, business. Yeah. yeah. We've got some great uh, businesses that are really helping out. We sure do. And, um, and up in the north here, I understand we have around 23 cases, but they're spread out. From what I what I heard on the yeah, news. so we don't know where those and it's this is intentional by Dr. Henry and yep. certainly Northern Health is that uh, we're, we don't know where those cases are and Dr. Henry is adamant about not identifying the location of those cases. Yes, uh, and I think part of that is a concern that uh, if those locations are identified, then a stigma is starting to be applied to that particular location and and so um, as I said earlier, we. We follow her direction, and that's uh, that's her position at this point. And and I went. I had to go out yesterday. That's the first time I've been out since um, the last time I was on the on March seventeenth, I guess. But I uh, I was out once before, um, and uh, I went into um, into Walmart, and they keep reminding you every five or ten minutes about the six feet apart. Yeah. And they've got um, the way that they want you to push your cart marked. And they've got yeah. a sign saying that this, everything's sanitized. And, and pretty much like when I was in an aisle and someone wanted to come down that aisle, they waited till I left the aisle. Like, we are, citizens are respecting what we're hearing, at least from yeah. my experience. And I felt very good about being able to go into the post office, into um, uh, the shoppers uh, to pick up my my uh, medication from the Reno Clinic. Everything was respectful. I didn't feel any kind of uh, panic. I didn't see people running out with rolls and rolls of toilet paper and paper no. towel. And anyway, you're limited now. You are. And everybody's aware of that. And And I really think my own personal experience, Mayor, is that... Um, people are listening. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think it's gotten much, much better. Uh, and you go to these... So, for example, um, uh, if, as you say, you go to Walmart, uh, they're uh, uh, wiping down the handles yep. of the carts with disinfectant. Yep. Uh, there's uh, hand sanitizers around the building. There's arrows that yep. direct traffic. Yeah, uh, we're seeing similar to that uh, at um, Superstore. 
Yeah. Of course, Costco are only allowing so many people to come in and maintaining that distance and sanitizer and yeah. sanitizer around the, the building as well. Um, and, and I've seen a greater amount of this in the last couple of weeks, which is fantastic. That I tells know. me that the message is getting through. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every store and, and, I've know, been speak, in. Yeah. And, and speaking of those stores, Sharon, and, and I'm sure everybody listening knows this, but they have specific shopping hours for seniors. Yes. Yeah, between and, 7 and 8. And I, I said to them, look, I got up early every day of my life to go to school, work. I don't want to get up early to go shopping. <laughs> and, and, uh, aren't some of them, though, from 8 until 9.30? Yeah. But what they told me was that's when the fresh produce is in as well. Yeah. And and so and I know people who are going to shop for seniors, and and they will go in and get the fresh produce for them. But I think that what it shows is uh, a concern and and respect. Absolutely, and yeah. I think it just gives seniors some comfort level, knowing that they may be just a few in the store at any given time. And so I'm very pleased to see that. Yeah, exactly. If Are, there's any, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say. Uh, are they doing testing here in town? Like, do you phone your... your? Um... Hello. Hi, are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Is that you, Reg? Well, it is now. Uh, <laughs> uh, Mike Morris is on the other line if, uh, if you want to finish up with the mayor. Oh, here. okay. I'll do that right now. Sure. Um, and so you'll call in next week? I will call in next week. Um, I only want to say one thing, if any of our seniors or anybody out there listening has anxiety about our supply chain, which is uh, our long-haul truckers bringing groceries uh, and supplies into Prince George. I've talked to Costco, Save-On Foods, Walmart, Superstore, uh, and they have indicated to me that there's no concern that they have about the continued strong supply chain. As a matter of fact, it had been getting stronger. Yeah. Uh, So that's important for seniors and everybody to know. That's Marilyn Hall and Sharon Hurd from Tuesday's edition of Senior Moments, and you can catch the mayor giving updates on the COVID-19 situation in Prince George uh, every Tuesday afternoon, 1 o'clock on Senior Moments. That's going to wrap it for today's edition of After 9. A long weekend, so no show tomorrow or Monday, but we will be back again on Tuesday.